Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen. I do appreciate you. And as always, feel free to reach out, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com. I hope you enjoyed the funky, groovy beat this morning here. I just got a little, I don't know, I got that little uh, 70s vibe feeling. I don't know what happened. I had a little little throwback earlier today. I was listening to a little bit of Whitney, and I recognize that Whitney's not from the 70s, but I had a little bit of that soul in my in my head from earlier, so maybe that's what brought it brought it back here. But anyway, I wanted to thank everybody. First off, I want to send a special thank you to our, our patrons, Mary, David, Adam, Mike. Thank you all so very much. Do appreciate you. But I also wanted to thank everybody else, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Like I, I, You're probably tired of me saying this too, but I have a chance and an opportunity to meet and talk to so many cool and amazing people, and the Discord is great. Just watching everybody chatting back and forth and joking with each other and having fun. But it's, it's just been a really amazing opportunity to get to connect with all of you. And I appreciate you bringing me into your homes, cars, and wherever else you're listening to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today, we're going to do B-Buzz episode 13. This just is just a culmination of questions that have come in from the discord through email and uh, just conversationally with a few folks I know. One thing I wanted to remind you of is, you know, there aren't always a lot of absolutes in beekeeping. It's kind of one of those things where it's not like there's a, a cheat sheet or a card that you read, like where things are binary, where it's on or off or one way or the other or right or wrong. And there's a lot of gray area in a lot of things that you do. When you're when you're new and, and it's early on, you'll have people that maybe have somewhere between two and let's say 10 years of experience. And they give you that well, this is how you do it, and this is the right way. There's there's my way, and then there's the wrong way. You know, that kind of weird stuff. I, I don't like to do that because I have had the chance to see so many people do things that are just, to me, goofy, strange, or weird that turn out to work really, really well, right? So don't get hung up on there being an absolute with a lot of things. Once you have a few years under your belt, then you'll start listening to people talk, and they'll say something, and you'll say, yeah, maybe, but you know, I've been doing it this way for three years so far and it's working really well, so I don't care. And that's that's the right attitude to have, right? Gather information from a bunch of different sources and a bunch of different people and then use what works for you. I tend to go with the which one sounds easiest approach 
because it just kind of makes sense. And I have a tiny bit of a lazy streak in me, but find, you know, something that works for you run with it. If it doesn't work, reevaluate, try again, you know, and I say all this because I mean, I've literally had hives that are side by side, same species, same type of bee, got them at the same time, came from the same uh, apiary, the same source, and they behave completely differently. And it's it's wild, and, and it's tough to kind of wrap your arms around. But again, it's those genetics, right? And I think it's great having that genetic diversity, you know, in your apiary so that you can kind of, over time, you know, breed for the traits that you, you like, which on that subject is kind of a little bit of a sidebar. But and that's where I've been very fortunate is I spent time in my earlier years kind of weeding out all the things I didn't like. And now I have some pretty low maintenance bees, which is good and bad. It's good because it makes my life easier. It's bad because I don't spend as much time with them as I like. So uh, they're not real happy with me. But it's it's always a challenge to, you know, to balance kind of the academic aspects of beekeeping with the practical aspects. It's that scholar versus practitioner kind of discussion. I know like in emergency medicine, they would say, treat the patient, not the monitor, right? Referring to the heart monitor or EKG. I think the same approach needs to be taken in the field with honeybees. It doesn't matter if the textbook says, for example, um, swarms should happen in your area by the end of March. Well, if you see a swarm cell on the 1st of March, guess what's going to happen a lot sooner than the end of March? You're, You're going to get a swarm, right? Take what you observe and what you see and, and read your notes and just do what's right for you. I think it's, it's really easy to get kind of hung up in, and again, wound up on those absolutes. And I and, and many other people are guilty of this. I, I'm not going to mention your name in the Discord, but you know who you are that overthinks things. I'm the same way, right? I overanalyze, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody because I'm in that category as well. But it, it's nice to know as an example, you know, okay, well, the queen is born, and within seven days she should be made and ready to go, having, you know, returned from her mating flight. You go in seven days later, and she's not there. And you're like, well, but uh, I thought it was supposed to be seven days. What's going on, right? Well, maybe she did not reach maturity to mate, in, you know, as fast as she should have. So maybe there was an extra day or two there. Maybe there was a couple of days of, of some bad weather. Or something happened that slowed her down. So maybe it's going to be more like 10 or 12 days. Well, if you get really wrapped up around the seven-day thing, that's going to be a struggle for you. But just, just recognize that, hey, you know, maybe it's going to be 10 to 12 days. Anyway, you know, do your best to kind of go with the flow. And if you're a little type A, you're a planner, you know, you may have to, because uh, for me, like, that's kind of how I am. Like, I try to plan it out and have, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And if this doesn't work, here's my contingencies. You know, if you're that kind of person, you know, come on, bring it in. Give me a big hug, right? I hear you. I'm with you. You may have some struggles. <laughs> but I think those of you who are a little more laid back, whether it's just naturally that way or whether you, you know, engage in some, some mellowing chemicals, you know, I'm not encouraging the use of, of drugs or anything that would be illegal on the federal level. But, hey, if you need to jump in and grab a grab a little gummy to calm you down, do what you got to do. Maybe it might enhance your experience with the bees. I don't know. I'm not speaking from experience here, just throwing out some ideas. Now, but the last thing I'll say about that is I am not trying to discourage the people who are the type A's and the planners or whatever. I just want those folks to recognize that it's going to be okay. Slow it down. Remember, there's no absolutes. New rules just right. It's like Outback Steakhouse. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to attack today is a discussion that has come up multiple times over the years, and I think it's going to come up again, and that's fine. We'll talk about it again. The question was raised, and I think I answered it 
effectively, but not necessarily getting at what the person was looking for. So the question is, hey, I've got some pe- people coming over to the house. There's a party going on. We're going to have a big backyard thing, and my bees are right there. You know, what do we do? You know, my suggestions were, were pretty much like, well, you know, you can wait till it's nighttime, put some hardware cloth over the entrance, and they'll just be locked up for the night. You know, I think somebody in the Discord actually commented like, hey, it's just like a rainy day, right? They're going to stay inside. No big deal. I think that's definitely one approach. I mean, you got to keep in mind, there are some bees that aren't going to make it home that night. You know, they spend the night out out in the town. They come back the next day. So they'll be hanging out by the entrance waiting to get in. But that certainly is an option. The other option that was discussed was the idea of maybe closing them up and then moving them to a different area of your yard so they're completely not visible or around at all while people are doing whatever they're doing with your barbecue hanging out whatever it might be that that's an option too uh one thing i would say about that is uh, obviously if you close them up and then you move them you, know, you just want to make sure that you return them back to the same spot so that they they don't lose track of where they're supposed to be but also remember there are going to be bees that will return to that area during the day that didn't make it back last night and they're probably going to be on the ground or on whatever the nearby object is while they're hanging out there, you know, kind of waiting for their home to come back. So don't be surprised if you do see a small cluster of bees in that area, should you decide to move them that way. But the real question that, that was being posed in this scenario was the physical aspect of moving them. Like, how do I physically pick them up and move them? And in my mind, I wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking about that. So I think you've got a couple of different options that you can explore here. And again, a lot of it comes down to your age, your strength. I know, you know, many years ago, it wasn't a big deal to sling around, you know, a 10 frame deep full of honey. Now I, you know, I'm barely messing with mediums these days. Just, yeah, it is what it is. But I don't recommend, particularly if you have a large colony, I don't recommend that you try and strong arm this thing and pick the whole thing up and just walk around with it. I think that's a really bad idea. If you have a smaller colony, maybe you have a single deep and a medium or just a deep or just a couple of nukes, I mean, picking those up, setting them onto a cart or putting them onto something and moving them, you know, that, that to me makes sense. I'll run through a couple of things that, that I do. If it's nukes, small colonies or whatever, I'll close them up. And I usually, because I have a small Kubota tractor and I've got uh, pallet forks on it, so I'll just drop a pallet right in front of wherever this colony is, you know, lift up, set down onto the pallet, and then I'll use the tractor to kind of move it around. And I'll strap it, you know, strap the colony or strap the hive to the pallet so it won't move, take it wherever I want, set it back down again, and that's kind of what I do. I also have like a yard, like a garden cart, and that's fine too. I think I remember one time having like a nuke that I had set in it and I was holding the top and kind of rolling around and something had separated between the bottom hive body and the bottom board. So I would definitely recommend if you have a way to strap everything together before you start moving it around, that's probably going to be a really good idea. So the pallet, the garden cart, both those have been effective. I have seen people, in fact, I just saw somebody post in the discord a couple days ago, a, um, like a hand truck that was designed to lift, you know, components and move things around if you're not doing the entire hive at one time like if like like again talking about a nuke or a deep and something that's small then you get into the approach of having to break it down into pieces this situation is a little bit different because the first scenario we're talking about we're closing the colony up and we're keeping them in the hive 
and then we're going to move them. If we have, let's say, for example, we have two deeps and three mediums on that, you're going to have to have a specialized piece of equipment in most situations to lift that up. Like I can think right now, I could take the bucket of my little Kubota tractor. I could hook up like a four point type of setup to onto the bucket and lift it up and then move it somewhere. I mean, it would be just scary. It would be really a scary situation, but I could definitely make that happen. Or maybe an excavator, one of the, you know, like, I don't know. There's a lot of different things you could do. But when you have to start tearing it apart and breaking it down by component, you got to recognize you're probably going to lose some bees or there are at least going to be bees left behind. So let's go to this yard example. You're, you're in your backyard and you've got, let's say, two deeps, two mediums, and you're on a hive stand and you got a bunch of people coming over and you want to move it to the very back of your yard for three days and then bring it back at the end you may be in a situation where you would have to, a couple ways you can do it here. You can just leave them alone, leave them be. And then when it gets dark, start lifting up pieces individually, you know, one piece at a time into a cart or multiple pieces into a cart, roll them back down the hill, put them back together as they were and leave it alone. Right now that option, you know, you got foragers going back to the old location. Probably not a great idea. Option two Make that move exactly like I just said, and then close up the hive at the new location. And then as long as they've got enough food stores in there, they'll be okay for a couple of days. Food stores and ventilation. Ventilation is key. They've got to still be able to move air through there to keep the some thermoregulation. But that's another way that you can do it. I definitely recommend something that keeps them closed up. Otherwise, you're going to have a cluster of bees on the ground or right in the area where you move them from. But anyway, getting back to ways of moving them. If you're doing them piece by piece, like you may not even, you may have a deep that is loaded with honey, right? You may have 10 frames of honey and that thing weighs 50 pounds. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, it's pretty heavy. You may have to go down to like the component level to do that. So in that scenario, you may need to take like, let's say for example, like a garden cart and an empty deep and then do frame by frame and move the frames into the hive body and then take the deep off of the colony, move it over to the other location, put it where it's going to be, and then load up all the frames. And then go back and do that with everything, right? And then once everything's put back together, then close it back up. But again, if the colony gets completely exposed, you're going to lose bees. Figuring out earlier than later how you want to manage your hives and your colonies and how you want to do that in a way that is easier for you is kind of important. I think my setup was primarily geared towards what's the best for pollination, for providing services with other commercial beekeepers that would allow us to work together and have comparable and similar equipment. And, you know, the deal we worked out was you had to have two deeps or one deep and two mediums. And that way it was just, that was just what we had kind of standardized on some of the guys I was working with, but you got to find something that's going to work for you because like for, for me, I'm almost to a point where I'd be completely fine with just running all mediums. I just don't want to lift any of that stuff anymore. And if you're, again, two, three, four, whatever, five colonies, probably not a big deal. 50, 60, 100, do that every day. It's going to start to wear you down. I know that's kind of a lot of info and it's a little bit all over the map because that's where my brain is pretty scattered. But to summarize, you know, you have the option of closing them up, leave them, leave them where they are. I like that. Close them up, move them, move them back, 
not a bad alternative. And then again, breaking them down. And you could always you know, lift the hive body off, set it down on a piece of board you've made that has a screened bottom to it, as an example. I mean, you know, be creative, think outside the box, whatever you can do. But you may have to, like I said, move it by component, move it by box. Or if you have you know, a piece of equipment, move it all at one time. If I didn't answer that effectively or if somebody just feels like, hey, man, you got to come back and help me out. We need some more info. You still didn't hit the mark. Let me know and we'll revisit that. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there, and I appreciate you. We will be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. Okay, so next on the list, we have Wax Foundation and acceptance of frames that have wax whether it's an whether it's a all plastic foundation or whether it is a wooden foundation wooden frame with plastic foundation getting some tips and tricks to kind of aid in the acceptance of that by the honeybees typically when you get these from the factory the ones that I've bought they come with a very light coating of a wax and what I've seen is in year one, they tend to do pretty good. Like if I take them out of the box and I drop them right into a hive, they usually do pretty well with those. I think that when they sit in a shed or a storage area or whatever, whatever was there kind of melts off a little bit or, or maybe it runs down to the bottom of the frame. I'm not exactly sure, but it doesn't seem to work as well. But what's funny about it is, again, this kind of comes down to some of those goofy bee things where you can have colonies side by side with the exact same thing and they behave differently. I've taken a wooden frame that has plastic foundation, and this thing was literally laying on the ground. Don't don't ask why some of my crap is laying on the ground. I'm I'm not the best with maintaining everything all the time. But I reach over, I pick it up, I like brush it off. I just get like some of the immediate dirt and junk off of it. Throw it into a hive, and then come back a week later, and it's drawn. It's they've used it, but yet the hive right next to them with a nice brand new clean one, they haven't touched it. So here are a couple of tips I'll recommend to kind of get them to accept varying types of foundation. Wooden frame, wax foundation, I don't have a lot of issues. You still have the same issues with them, not necessarily expanding upwards or left and right. But once they get to it, they're on it. It's no big deal. All plastic frames have probably been the most challenging for me. The one big advantage to those over your traditional wooden frame, wax foundation, and I think I've mentioned it before, but... In my earlier seasons, I had wax moth, and they would burrow through, like, laterally, like, left to right, laterally through the hive. 
So if they started on frame two, those larvae would bore their way through and just kind of cut frame to frame all the way across. And they could quickly decimate an entire hive just within, you know, a couple of weeks. With the solid foundation, whether it's plastic foundation on a wooden frame or an all-plastic frame, they can't go through it. They have to hit the edge, climb around, and then go to the next one. So it does slow them down a little bit, so I I really do like that. But outside of that, the all-plastic frames, for whatever reason, I've had a lot of issues with them. It's like the, the bees will start to draw the comb, and then they bring it out off of the plastic and bring it down, so you end up with, with like two layers of cells of that they will lay eggs in. So they'll go onto the inside and then on the outside. One way I started trying to get them to work around that is I would actually take a piece of wax foundation and just press it down into the plastic frame so it was kind of squashed into it and force them to work with it that way. That helped a little bit. But I, honestly, I still have a couple of plastic frames floating around the all plastic. I have not bought any new ones in years, and I won't replace them when they when they age out. But anyway, getting back to the acceptance, the one common way that people will try to get the bees to accept the in any type of frame, whether it's you know wooden with plastic or all plastic, whatever, is spraying them down with sugar syrup. That's kind of moderately effective. What I have found is that draws them to the frame. But that doesn't necessarily always make them draw it up. As an example, if we take traditional 10-frame Langstroth, they've drawn up, let's say, 8 out of 10 frames down below. You drop another super on top, and you douse them in sugar syrup. I've seen them come up, drink the sugar syrup, and go right back down. And they don't draw it out. So it's going to work with some. It's not necessarily going to work with others. The one that has that really has had the best effectiveness for me is just taking that old foundation and melting it down, I got, you know, like an old pot from the thrift store, you know, or if you have an old pot that you're not using anymore, do not go in the kitchen and grab your significant other's favorite pot and just be like, oh, I'm just melting down this wax stuff. It'll be fine. We can clean it out and reuse it later. Don't do that. Don't be that person. But get a cheap one from somewhere or retire one. You know, it's a great opportunity for you to, to you know, impress the wife and be like, hey, I got this whole new dishware set for you here because I stole your pot that I'm melting wax with now. But melt that down, paintbrush while it's still hot, brush that on. That has been really effective for me because it's got that natural scent that it's all coming from beeswax already. That's what I do. It's time consuming and, you know, but it is what it is. One question that comes up pretty regularly, I think, is, you know, we get these virgin queens that are going out to mate and, you know, it's a scary thing. You show up in your colony and you open everything up and, you look inside and you see hatched queen cells. You can't find a queen. And, you know, normally when there's a swarm, you have all these larvae that are now, you know, developing into workers. You see cat brood everywhere. And then you go in there and you open it up and there's no cat brood. Because, like, as soon as they all start hatching, it's like, okay, guys, it's time to go. And it's like everybody's leaving at the same time and they don't leave a whole lot behind necessarily. And they also will try to the workers will, will sort of try to semi-starve the queen a little bit before before she swarms so that they can lighten her up and make her better able to fly. It's kind of a weird thing, but that's what they do. But you go into this hive and you're looking at everything. You see the swarm cell. You're looking around. You, you, know, you don't see a queen. Or maybe you do see one, but it wasn't the one that was marked with the yellow circle a couple days earlier. It can be a little unnerving. 
the general kind of rule is that you know that queen's going to take a couple of days. She needs to be born, reach sexual maturity, and then she, of course she's going to be taking out you know the other queen cells that are available. And usually within somewhere like a three to five six day point, she goes out, does her flight, gets mated, comes back. You know anything can throw that off a little bit. There could be some weather. There could be something else that slows her down, and it may be eight or ten days. Might be a couple a couple days longer. You know you just you just don't know. So don't. Don't lock yourself into the seven-day point. But I also say that when you don't have a queen, that's a pretty good time to start thinking of alternate plans and having a backup plan in place because things happen, and it's nice to know. I would be planning that well in advance when you're starting your kind of bee journey. Like, who do I reach out to to get a new mated queen if I need one? That also is kind of following in on the discussion we've had recently with regard to what you do with queen cells. What I tell a lot of folks is if you have the ability to do it, even if you don't want to split, even if you don't want new queens, new colonies, if you have the ability to do it, it may not be a bad idea to grab that frame and get a two or a three frame nuke or a five frame nuke, whatever. Throw that frame in there. Let that queen be born. Let her go out and get mated. Let her come back and start laying. And then the production colony can keep doing its thing because if something gets messed up, I think we had somebody in there today, just recently. They thought they had all the queen cells. They didn't. They missed one. You only have to miss one, and and they will swarm. And now he's queenless. Now, she's probably out doing a mating flight, and she'll be back soon, but you're losing time. right? This is precious time of year where that queen needs to be laying every single day, and you're losing that time now. But if you're able to pull that frame out, put it off to the side, and let that queen be, be raised into a mature queen, if the, the colony did swarm still and you missed it by some chance, you just go and take that frame, that entire colony, and drop it back in the original colony, and you're back and running, right? She's a laying queen, strong pheromone. You're back in business the same day. So it's ne- it never hurts to have a couple of extra queens laying around. I don't know why that sounds weird. Anyway, moving on. So the next thing is here, I'm, I mean, I'm doing an inspection. I look in the, in the hive here. And there's no more brood. I don't know. Is my queen gone? Like, did she die? Like, what's going on? So two things to to look for right away. Queens are very elusive. They're really, really good at hiding. Look through the frames and you're looking for eggs and young larvae. You know, if you have an egg, you know she's been there in the last 24 hours. You have larvae, you know she's been there within the past couple of days. Always a good sign. Even in a dearth or even in periods where things are drawing down, there should still at least be a little bit of activity. Just you know, a few eggs here and there just, just to kind of keep her in the zone. But it's not uncommon that as resources dwindle, as you move from you know, kind of feast into famine or surplus into scarcity, they will taper back. You know, the, the colony will say, nope, no more. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough resources coming in. More mouths to feed. Not going to do it. That's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, knowing that things like hive beetles and varroa, that they reproduce in brood, having a break in the brood cycle is not a bad thing. Like that's what we experience here in the mid Atlantic and, you know, down in Southeast Virginia, North Carolina, we have a break in that, in that nectar flow, which sort of allows us an opportunity to go ahead and, you know, treat for varroa and address hive beetles, address anything that's going on in the colony that feeds on brood. So just because you don't see a, a big full frame of cat brood like you were seeing you know, through March, April, May time frame 
doesn't mean she's gone. Doesn't mean she's hurt. You know, it, it, she's probably just hiding from you. But definitely look and and continue to do inspections. If I need to see a queen, I don't see eggs. I don't see larvae. And it's like a Saturday inspection. I'm back in there probably Monday or Tuesday to look again, just to make sure it's entirely possible again that they may have swarmed. New queens coming back. So I know it's frustrating, and I know that it can kind of wear you down. But hang in there. Had a question today. Uh, about somebody who was see- seeing some earwigs in their hive. And I was thinking to myself that I-, I remember seeing some in mine. And, you know, it's like you pop off that outer cover. And it seems like if you're using the telescoping outer cover, it seems like there's always something getting up in there, whether it's ants or a cockroach or an earwig or spiders. There's always something that wants to hang out up in that inner cover area. I've never had any issues with them. Like, they've been present. I grab the hive tool. I'll do a quick scrape of the inside and get whatever's in there off. You know, bang the lid on the ground a couple of times and shake everybody loose. I went ahead and did a little bit of research real quick just to make sure I wasn't going to mislead anybody. What I did find is they actually feed on small things like mites and, and things like that. But there's no definitive evidence or research done to prove that they eat varroa mites or, or any of that. And honestly, they would kind of need to be down, you know, in the hive, in the mix to be able to do that. And frankly, you know, a, a strong a colony is going to keep that in check. They're not going to allow them to run run around and run amok and all that kind of stuff. So the short answer is they're not a threat. Keep an eye on them like anything else. You know, you see them in there, just kind of scrape them, scrape them off, throw them to the side or whatever, but no major issues. I did read one thing somewhere that had commented something about that they could potentially be a carrier for foul brood. But I kind of glanced at it, and it didn't seem like it was really anything to be concerned about. The next thing I wanted to talk about here is bottom boards. Solid bottom boards versus screened. And if you're going to make the switch back and forth, kind of when do you do it and why and all of that. So, again, like most stuff in beekeeping, right, you have, you know, it becomes like a religious discussion. There's some old timers that are like, you don't need screened bottom boards. You know, there's no screens in a tree. And, you know, they've just been beekeeping without screen bottom boards for decades, and it's worked okay, so why do we need to change it? And then there's the approach of, well, hey, maybe ventilation is a good thing. If it doesn't hurt anything, why not give it a shot? I'm kind of on the side of if it doesn't hurt and it has a benefit, it's worth looking at. Now, I know some people have said like, oh, yeah, put your little piece of paper thing underneath of your screen bottom board and you can have the mites will fall down to the bottom and then you can count and get a mite count. Like, no, please don't do that. If it like that. Okay. That kind of wears me out a little bit. So the theory here is that up inside the hive somewhere, a bee looks over another bee and says, wow, you got a mite. Let me take care of this. And they kind of wiggle it off and mess with it a little bit. And then it's going to fall through 10 or 15,000 bees through the frames and it's going to go down to the screen, go through the screen, and end up on this little board that you've put a little bit of vegetable oil on or something so that they all stick to it. I'm not saying that a few of them won't fall through. I'm not saying that you can't make a measurement based on the ones that fell through. I just think the statistical probability of anything accurate actually coming from that type of an approach to mite management is like 0% chance. Like that's just not, that's not going to work. So for, for that, to me, that, like, that's out of it. That's, that's useless. But the ability to ventilate the hive better with the screen bottom board, I think it has its merit. I think it's a good thing. 
what I did personally years ago was I was using nothing but solid bottom boards. And I don't know where I'd heard mention of it, but at some point I'd heard, hey, you know, screen bottom boards are a pretty good thing. You should check them out. What I started doing then was I'd have my overwintered bottom board, which I would leave in place. And then I would try to do, like in my second or third inspection, do like the scrape, like the seasonal scrape where you, all the funky stuff that was in there from the winter, you just scrape it all out and just, you know, hive tool it and get it all cleaned up. And then usually around now, like late May, early June, I switch over to the screen bottom board, leave that on through the summer and then around Labor Day time frame. And that might be a good measure if you wanted to do that, like Memorial Day to Labor Day. But around Labor Day, I swap them out and I go back to the solid bottom board, and leave that on the rest of the year. Now, a lot of the screen bottom boards come with a little bit of a, um, like a, a lip. I, don't, I can't think of a better way to describe it, like a shelf almost, that you can slide a small board into. So what you can actually do is if you want to use the screen bottom board year round, what you could do is just take a piece of board, just measure it to size, you know, cut it and slide the board in you know, September 1st or whatever you want to do, and then pull that board out, you know, around Memorial Day, and you're accomplishing the same thing without having to tear everything apart, you know, twice a year. The reason I didn't like this originally is because I felt that the small little board that I put in there was creating too many gaps. But as I begin to learn more about how important it is to have some cool air, you know, coming into the colony to reduce moisture, I thought, well, if I want some air to come in anyway, I've already got a pretty good size opening on the very front of this. It's probably not going to be a big deal. I mean, you do need airflow. So that's what I've done now for a few years, and that works pretty well on that colony type. On the smaller things in the nukes and, and others, I don't I don't usually do that. You know, the nukes with the solid bottom boards, what I have done with some of them is just gone to the back and take like a one-inch spade bit drill and just drill a hole, cover it with some hardware cloth, and then, you know, cover that up. If I were to try to overwinter something, I would cover that hole up in the winter. But those are really just kind of spring-summer hives for me. They always end up getting broken down and merged with others, and and I don't try to overwinter them. But ventilation is definitely a, a big deal there. Okay, the question, uh, I got the next one here is, I have some frames where the bees have drawn the comb up a little little goofy. I think this is my word. I don't think this was theirs. But drawn it up a little goofy, and it's partially blocking other frames. Should I take one out and just use nine frames, or should I remove that comb and make them rebuild? I'm pretty sure that most of my 10-frame colonies are running on nine frames, and it's for just that reason. You put everything in. You get it all nice and spaced evenly and you feel like you've done everything you need to do to get them set up for success. And then you go and do an inspection and you'll see sections of comb that kind of dip down and go up underneath the other frame that's adjacent to it. And then there's no foundation drawn out on that frame. And you're like, what are you guys doing? Like what, why, why would you do, why would you be this way? Why would you be this way? Anyway, but that happens all the time. It's not uncommon. And what I usually do with that is let them draw it out the way they want. And then when I have a logical time to make some shifting in the frames or whatever, I will pull out the least used one and then re-space them a little bit and let them run with that. It's, it's just, to me, that makes sense. I think that if you are not comfortable with them being 
in some state of disarray or you feel like you're missing something or you just don't like it, you can take the frame out. My recommendation is wait until whatever is on there is used. So if you need to wait until the, the brood is born or until the food is taken out and fed as bee bread or honey or whatever it might be, it's a lot of work, as you know, and a lot of resources to do what they do in those spaces. And you come in there and you destroy the whole thing. They got to start over. But if you don't like what you see, wait till they're, they're done with it. Take the frame out, you know, put the wax into a melter or put it aside for you to melt down later on and make them start over. But yeah, I've got a lot of a lot of 10 frame stuff running nine frames. Another question that came in today, when do you scrape the comb that they build between the box frames? So this person said specifically that they are full of honey and it keeps them from taking them off. They do break open when they do the inspections and they're just not sure what they ought to do. They hate to you know kind of destroy the hard work. What I would say is I get the mindset of, boy, it's a lot of work. I don't want to mess them up. But it's kind of one of those things where is there a time later on where they're going to be happy with it? Like, are they going to be upset with you doing it now? But a month from now, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, totally fine. Go ahead and have at it. I generally like to do things that I know are going to make them angry sooner than later. One, it gives them more time to recover from whatever I had to destroy. And two, hopefully whatever I'm destroying is smaller now than it will be down the road. The only things that I kind of don't usually mess with is a little bit of burkholm that comes up like on the bottom of a frame. I don't usually mess around with that too much. And if there's a tiny bit of burkholm on the top of the frames, I don't, I don't as well. But what ends up happening, if you're putting hive body on top of hive body, is, is they will take the top of that frame from the lower one and they will build straight up. As I slam into the mic, they will build straight up because I'm using my hands to walk you through it at the same time. But they'll go straight up and connect it from the, the high body above to the one below. You need to get rid of that as soon as possible. Just just get rid of it. Get it out of there. Because what will happen is as you go through and you're tearing open brood and you're tearing open honey, they're going to get really, really irate with you. Just rip off the Band-Aid and get it knocked out. Well, everybody, I think that we have pretty well covered everything here for the day. I, uh, I know there's going to be some more that I probably ended up missing or there's something that I didn't explain in great enough detail. But if I did miss something, just hit us up in the Discord and let me know. We'll talk about it there and we'll, we'll get, it, uh, get it addressed on an upcoming episode. If you're not in the Discord, just go to the Beekeeping for Newbies homepage. There's a link right there. And uh, we're always looking. I think we just hit 100 people in the Discord room, which is really exciting. Yep, yep. Good stuff. Okay. So thank you all for your participation there. That's really awesome and great. One last thing I forgot to mention here. I am not sponsored by Harbor Freight. I am a big fan, but check out their 25% sale that goes on through Memorial Day. 25% off any single item restriction supplies. See store associate for details. All right, everybody. Take care. Have a great weekend, and I will talk to you soon. Credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega.
biggest stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.